Time marches on and leaves behind those who are not equipped for tomorrow. We cannot predict what will happen in the future, but we at Regent University aim to prepare you for it. With world-class professors in over 150 programs, the opportunities to find success in your field are many. So don't let tomorrow pass you by. The journey to your brightest future begins here. Visit regent.edu slash learn more. This program is sponsored by Amplified Peace. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Amplified Peace. We are all about exploring how we can listen, learn, and live differently in this crazy world. Together, we want to discover the impact of empathy, the strength of unity, the power of love, and the beauty of humanity. I'm your host, Lisa Jernigan. So let's jump in and let's have some fun. Today, I get the privilege of sharing some time with my good friend, Rachel Brown, who is the founder and executive director of Over Zero. And Over Zero, first of all, it's an amazing organization, but it's an organization that leverages insights from research and practice to understand the relationship between communication and violence. They use this knowledge to build an active peace. And we're going to talk about this, going to break this down. What does that mean? Well, Rachel and her colleague, Samantha Owens, and Julie Bean, who's the executive director here with Amplify Peace, and I have spent many hours together sharing life, experiences, lots of laughter, while also diving deep and exploring what it means to be a peacemaker and trying to solve the challenges around polarization and division. So welcome, welcome, Rachel. I'm so excited and thank you for being a part of Amplify Peace today. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for having me on this podcast. I always love the opportunity to get to discuss these themes with you, and I'm glad and honored to be able to do it as part of the podcast. Well, Julie and I think of you and Sam as part of Amplify Peace because you're so much a part of the work and you inform us. And it's just, it's just good to share life together and, uh, you, you complete us. So thank you for that. I want people to get to know you. Um, and so I want you to just share a little bit about you and why you're so passionate about this work that you are doing. That's a great question, Lisa. And this work, um, right now it's taking the form of over zero. Um, but I think that throughout my life, it's been important. Um, to me, I think since um, I was a small kid, I always had a sensitivity to issues around justice, issues around um, fairness, and also um, a real sensitivity around things that could be prevented. And I've really come to believe, I mean, I work in the field of violence and, uh, and, and violent conflict prevention and preventing group targeted and identity based violence and other forms of harm. And to me, it comes down to how we relate to each other as humans. There are just so many things that are hard in this world. There are natural disasters, right? There's disease, there's all these things that really sit so out of our control. But but that when we collaborate together, we're able to face to face them better. We're able to face a natural disaster better when we come together as a community. We're able to make strides um, in addressing different diseases and, and how they affect us, different illnesses, when we come together and collaborate. But conflict and violence are, are things that are great harms that we do to each other. Right? Mm-hmm. It's not some outside force coming to impact us. These are things that we directly visit upon each other. And so in some ways, it feels like the most preventable type of harm out there. 
So I think I'm called to this work in part because it just feels like we really should be able to prevent this harm. It is so in our control as humans, um, how we treat each other, how we choose to relate to each other. And at the same time, when we're not able to collaborate, when we're divided from each other, when we turn against each other, when we circle the wagons around our own group um, and start to think it's okay to harm others, uh, we lose some of the things that actually best position us to face the biggest challenges in our world and of our time. We lose the ability to collaborate and work together. So I see it as really the, the, the work that calls to me is really, really two parts. One is preventing this harm that I believe should be, should be so preventable, the harm that we do to each other. And on the other end, really enabling the type of collaboration that is our superpower as human beings mm-hmm. to be able to come together, to be able to face challenges collectively and draw on each of our unique perspectives and skills and talents. So I think that's what motivates me. And and on another level, I've really focused on group targeted harm identity-based violence where people are targeted based on um, just their identity based on just who they are. And, and again, that feels like this ultimate um, injustice um, to me. And so, so that has come to me. Wow. I, you know, so many, so much in there that you said, because a lot of times we, when there's something that goes wrong, we want to shift the blame. It's not my fault. It's because of this. It's because of a circumstance. It's because of somebody else. What you're saying is it's really within us to look inside because we're the ones that are causing a lot of this harm and violence and that's taken to an extreme. And along one of the things that you, that you guys say at over zero is communication and about how communication can divide and unite. And that's kind of what you're talking about is how our words, our communication, how we language things can either cause us to want to collaborate together or to want to separate and go to our separate corners. And our superpower is when we come together. And we collaborate. And, you know, you're talking about this division and and it leads to violence. Well, we've seen this and you've been a part of this work like in Rwanda where you see that because people go, well, how can hatred and this identity uh, group, you know, identity, how can that does that really happen? And all we have to do is look at Rwanda. Can you talk about that a little bit, how you saw that progression lead to something that nobody could have seen coming? Yeah, well, absolutely. And so our work at Over Zero, my own work actually started internationally. I worked in Kenya for four years, and then I worked in genocide and atrocity prevention, looking at historical case studies like Rwanda, like the Holocaust, um, and seeing what can we learn from them about how we can prevent this from happening again. And like you said, my work has really focused on the role of communication you think about the stories that we tell ourselves as individuals, but also at the level of a society, we're telling stories all the time. We're making sense of the world around us all the time using communication. Who is part of us? Who do I belong with? Who's part of my group? Who who might be considered other? How do I understand this event that just happened? Um, and and what we see in societies that that start to move towards instances of genocide, like what we saw in Rwanda, and like what we've seen in other cases of mass violence against people based on their identity, 
throughout history is that communication, these stories that are told throughout a society and that are told by leaders in that society, political leaders, cultural leaders, religious leaders even, um, start to pave the way towards violence. It's one of the earliest red flags that we often see on that path towards violence because it changes how people understand each other and the world around them. And that communication, we see those patterns over and over again where they they create an us and a them that's mm-hmm. very rigid. In the case of Rwanda, that was based on a on a set of sort of ethnic identities that had originally been created by by colonists in that country. And um and we saw that in in the Holocaust, right? There was an us that was this sort of Aryan identity and different versions of other Jews, Roma, people with disabilities. Um so this this creation of an us and a them and the narratives that target this 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 constructed idea of a them or of an other and start to portray them in certain ways. Mm-hmm. I think one of the most important things I want to say here is that the narratives that other um, portray an entire group of people as sharing some fundamental essence. I think we can think that all humans share some essence. We share some essence of humanity. But these harmful narratives start to say that everyone of a certain religion, everyone of a certain skin color or ethnicity or national background shares within them some sort of essence that is in some way rotten or bad. And that members of that group are inherently a threat. They're a threat to the um, sort of quote unquote, our way of life, physical safety, purity. Um, It says that this quote unquote other is responsible for these bad things. It starts to scapegoat. They're responsible for the downturn of the economy. They've committed past atrocities against us. And what it starts to do is it creates a self-defense argument to be violent against a whole group of people right? By saying they're threatening, so we have to be violent first. Um, in Rwanda, actually, a famous propagandist for the genocide called this an accusation in a mirror. You accuse the group you want to target of the same thing you're about to do to them. They said that the Tutsi were about to commit a genocide against Hutu in order to justify committing a genocide, right? So there's that threat narrative, that guilt narrative. They've done horrible things. Mm-hmm. You're taking revenge. We're making things right. And then this idea that they all share that essence of threat and of guilt and are somehow less than human. We see dehumanizing language. And we can see it in the extreme cases, often comparisons to rats, vermin, cockroaches, other pests. But I think we can see it, for example, even in the way you see this in migration reporting sometimes. There are quote unquote um, words like swarms being used to describe groups of people who aren't swarms. That's a, that's a word that we use to talk about animals. So we need to look for these, these patterns. But, but I want to say also that the, we also see patterns of communication around who is the us, a very rigid idea of who is this, who's this us and who belongs and who deserves protection. And we often see narratives that dehumanize and objectify women and children by saying, we have to protect our women and children as if they're sort of objects and that justify violence through this lens of really this sort of idea of masculinity that says that that valorizes violence. It says to be a good man, you have to commit violence because um, by committing violence, you're going to be protecting our group. You're going to be protecting, quote unquote, our women and children. So there's these narratives we see again and again, not just about the other, but who are we? And this idea that we're good people, we just have to commit violence because we have to do it to protect ourselves. We have no other choice besides violence. And it's not just justified. It's necessary. And if you're a good man, then you'll participate. And if you're a good woman, then you'll encourage it. So these very sort of um, um, very gendered ideas there, too, and that that we have to do violence now to have a better future. So so the othering narratives are often easier to see 
and to know that they're harmful, but the narratives of us, I think we should all try to be sensitive to as well. This is something we really need to pay attention to and all that you're saying and how the progression of even violence, like with our words, like what you said, like if I use the word swarm, if I use the word, you know, are, and, and, and it makes, that's one of the, the things I have learned on this journey of peacemaking and learned from just being with you is how much our words do matter. And they, we, we use words really flippantly, but we don't realize that our words have the power again to the point earlier to either divide or to unite. And they can be words we just, we don't even think about. But how do we start thinking about the, the words we use and why we use those? Cause a lot of what you're saying is we buy into agendas that we don't even know we're buying into. And then our actions follow. So let's make this personal back home because we've seen this like, in history, we see that across, you know, and the, the unthinkables of today become the realities of tomorrow. And we never think something like that could happen. Let's make it personal here to us living here um, in our own communities. How do we, how do we become aware of bad languaging and the potential of that? And how do we start to correct that? It's such a good question, Lisa. Um, and we could dedicate a whole podcast that to absolutely in the future. But what I'll say right now, I do think that the awareness is the first step. And I think we can all start with self-reflection, right? What are the ways in which without even realizing it, I'm thinking of versions of in us or in other? What are the narratives I hear that say that this group of people is somehow threatening? Can I ask, is that really true? Or is this portraying a whole group of people as sharing in essence? There's there's a lot that we can just start to pay attention to and notice. Um, and say something about it when we hear it or or catch ourselves where we might be we might be hearing this language. But I also think one thing I want to say, like you said, let's make this personal. Um, we work in the US now. We started to see these narratives in the US. Um, and and I didn't think that that's where my career would take me when I started down this path, but it felt really important to me to address what I was seeing sort of in my my own backyard and see how the lessons I've learned internationally um could could be engaged here. And we have a long history. I mean, I think one of the important things we know that where violence happens, it tends to happen along similar lines where you see a history of violence. So I think educating about the history in this country, um, the history of violence, whether that's slavery, whether that's violence against Native and Indigenous people at the founding, it's important that we learn about that because you see these narratives alive and well in those time periods too. Um, So educating ourselves and becoming aware Um, But the other thing that I'll say is that we all have a voice. I think Mm -hmm. that as this rhetoric starts to take hold in a society, um, and we've not just seen the rhetoric, we've seen violence. Um, We've seen, you know, um, an interaction. We've we've seen real political violence in this country now Mm -hmm. um, in in very recent years. Um, All of us have a role to play. And one of the things that happens, bad things happen, not just because we see this bad speech, but because a lot of the people that could stand up and speak out against it don't. They Mm -hmm. say it's too hard. My voice doesn't really matter. Or I just don't really want to get involved with this. The costs are too high. They're going to come after me if I say something. And that is exactly how these narratives work. They they don't just target the other. They target anyone that's standing up and saying this language isn't okay. Um, and I think that we're still early enough in this country and we have enough people that are standing up. And I, I so I think it's really about digging into moral values and saying, I'm going to be courageous. I'm going to, we work with so many people across the country who are choosing to speak out, to use their voice 
voices in their positions of leadership, whether it's formal or informal leadership or just with their group of friends, are using their voices to say, we want to take this a different direction. So I just want to say, I do think each and every one of us has a responsibility to not see this and be silent, but see this and do something and find other people that we can do something with. And that's why we love working with Amplify Peace because of everything that you all are doing um, to educate people and bring people together to really, to really take action. And to have a different conversation, right? Not more of the same and not perpetuating these, um, these narratives that can have the potential to hugely divide and and what you're talking about when using our voice, you're not talking about being an angry activist. I think a lot of times we hear that and like use your voice and we go, I don't want to be that person that is that, you know, I have to do we have this image or what we think we have to do. We're just saying use your voice in your family as you talk to your children. Right. Um, don't perpetuate more of that, the negative and the fear, because we allow fear to infuse our, our words and, and are motivated by that. So what you're saying is use your voice among your friends, you know, and respectfully. Um, a lot of times, you know, we will say like, help me understand how you came to that conclusion. Yeah. Not, not putting people on the defense, but just, I want to understand because I want to learn from you. Why you think that way, right? Um, some other, because uh, all this is so good and we could spend hours and we do spend hours with you talking about this because we need to do this work. Um, like you said, if we don't, the consequences are too high. What's at stake? And we got to think about generations, our kids and our kids, kids, right? The generations that will follow us. Um, I want to touch base real quickly. Um, you guys have been really engaged because I think this could come along with this and uh, something you called the, the bo- um, belonging barometer, intense research on what it means to belong and how the aspect of belonging is so important to our humanity and to our human nature. Um, can you address that um, for like talk briefly about that? We only have a few moments, but I think that is a part of like, you talk about the identity base that, that can divide, but we have this, this need to belong. That's a wonderful question. I'm so glad you asked it. And Lisa, I just want to say, I love what you just said, because I, I mean, use your voice, use your voice with compassion, use your voice in the way that feels right and authentic and real to you. It just means don't disengage, right? Use your voice, mm-hmm. use your time, use your talents, paint a different way forward, have a different conversation, go talk to someone who's being othered and and learn from them, right? There's so much mm-hmm. to do. But I think the thing is, Know that there's something you can do. Find those small actions you can take in your life or 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 find a space that you can get involved. Um, um, don't let the the sort of the voices that are that are carrying these messages and these messages um drive you into silence or complacency or inaction. Um I think your question about belonging is huge and ties to the sort of what we can do, right? We did this research on belonging because it comes up over and over in our work. Um humans have a need to belong. Um, and research in our brain shows we're even really wired for belonging. And so we wanted to see the state of belonging in, in America, in people's families, friendships, workplaces, local communities, and how they feel belonging um, to the country. And, and while some number and percentage of people actively find belonging in each of those spaces, we find that many people either feel exclusion or just a lack of belonging. And I think this is both a real challenge. We find belonging is quite related to different health outcomes, civic engagement, 
fear of different um, of sort of the future and things like demographic change, whereas belonging is associated with less fear, more support for democracy, more um, more civic engagement. Um, and so I think um, belonging is also an opportunity. Belonging isn't something you just do or give to someone else. It's something we create together, right? And our definition of belonging that we really tested this measure up and found to, to really be an accurate match to whether people just said that they felt belonging was to what degree people feel social connection, to what degree they feel connect, like real meaningful social connection in each of those particular spaces, to what degree do people feel psychological safety? Do they feel recognized for their contributions, able to speak their minds without consequences? And to what degree do people feel a sense of agency or co-creation in, in those specific spaces? Like they understand how they how things work and they can have an influence on it. So, so it's also not just you're allowed to be there. It's do I really feel an ownership and a sense that that this is my space too, whether it's my family, whether it's my workplace. And so I think even just thinking about those three different areas that map so well onto belonging, we can ask each of us also, how are we helping create belonging in the different spaces we function in, whether that's our city, whether that's our um, place of worship, whether that's our local community center, whether that's our neighborhood. And I think that that, again, is a great locus of action. And it asks us to think about everyone, right? We don't want belonging, but only for a few people. And it's dangerous if people only feel like they belong within one particular community. If I only feel like I belong in people that share my faith or people that live in my neighborhood or people um, who share a particular skin color, ethnicity or something, right? Like that, that can get really dangerous. So the question is, how are there spaces of belonging um, for us all? How are our cities that we live in? Um, how are we asking um, if and how people experience belonging in, in their city, in their local grocery store, and how we can make those experiences better all around? And I think it offers really fertile ground for us to collaborate um, and ask how we create belonging. And I'll say, I think, um, to the point of different ways to take action, some of what Amplified Peace is doing, for example, with the My Towns, is such a great example, right? It's asking people to engage with the history of the place that they are, to deepen their relationship to a place and to people they're not already connected to there. And I think that can be an important starting point for for asking questions about belonging and exploring that with different partners um, and different people. So I just think that there's there's so many different ways that we can engage um, and be active on these really critical issues of our time. And I just think belonging is a really beautiful avenue for people to engage that forces us to really to really think about the experience of everyone involved um, and, and to just connect it back to that drawing of an us versus them. It's not going to work if we just try and create belonging within a narrow silo of an us. We have to ask who are we living in a society with and how are we creating belonging with and for each other in that broader society. And um, so hopefully it's also an invitation for people to connect differently with others and to learn mm -hmm. about each other's experience of belonging or lack thereof and ask how we can build belonging together in our in our communities and in our country. I just want to say, I, as I listen to you, I'm just like, my mind is going crazy and your words so unite. And, and, and I, the power of your words and your heart, like your heart, your passion just comes, comes through and you are really, you're really changing. You're, you're, you're transforming people and you're transforming countries. Cause I know you've been a part of a lot of nations, but just here and making us aware. And I, I love when you said earlier, our superpower is collaboration. And I know that God 
wired us for relationship. He wired us for relationship with each other, relationship with him. And we have gotten that wrong. We have, we have started using, you know, like you said, our words that are dividing those relationships. We are not wired to live in isolation to your point of this whole belonging. Um, I just want to ask you a question throughout that process of this whole belonging, because I think it's so critical to how we live with ourselves, with others and in society. What was one thing that surprised you in the findings or what you discovered with that? There was a lot that surprised me. I think the lack of belonging across spaces, in some way I expected it, and in some way it was still shocking how much work we need to do on belonging. We also did some analysis of different factors that matter for belonging, and socioeconomic status came up in a big way. It was the factor that when we ran these regression analyses across everything else, um, really stood out that higher socioeconomic status was associated with more belonging and lower socioeconomic status with less belonging. And I think something that that tells us, and then at the different levels, you can see, for example, um, for national belonging, race was one of the factors that really correlated with belonging. So we can ask, why is that? What what I think it indicates is that belonging is actually in our society quite structural. Um, and we can ask about um about some of those structural factors and what we can do to change some of the structure of our society so that really everyone can feel like they belong. Um, and and just how much, yeah, how much belonging um, seems to really matter. And I think one of the, um, maybe I'll leave it there. I know we have limited time. So there's there's lots to unpack there, but um, but but I'll leave it at that. Well, no, that's so good. Because I, I wanted to ask you just briefly, to finish the sentence a peacemaker is because what you're talking about, all of this is going, how do we live differently? So finish that sentence. A peacemaker is. Wow. Well, you know, I'm not the best at being succinct, Lisa. So I'll just say something that impacted me a lot some years back was someone talking about the distinction between peace and pacification. And pacification says, let's just maintain how things are, but nobody get too upset and nobody be violent. Right. And peace is something different. Peace is transformative. I always think of an active peace. What are we doing every day to make a society where everyone can feel like they belong, where everyone experiences dignity, where everyone experiences a sense of protection? And so I think to me, that's what a peacemaker is, someone that's really working towards that type of an active peace. Um, and and that's not just um, that it's not about pacification. It's not just about maintaining how things are. It's about improving our world so that everyone can have dignity and everyone can flourish to their full potential. Oh my gosh. Thank you. This is, that is such a great way to end everything. I'd love to keep talking, but I just want to thank our listeners for being part of our podcast today at Amplify Peace. For more information on living as a peacemaker in today's world, connect with us at AmplifyPeace.com and follow us on all social media. Shalom. This program was sponsored by Amplified Peace. Turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525.